This is season two of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.6, Lias, and we're your hosts. I'm Tom, lifelong Gundam fan and number one Camille apologist. And I'm Nina, Zeta noob and ball of rage. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 137 patrons. Thank you all. And special thanks go out to our newest patron, Tex Merkeith. For those of you who haven't heard of her, she does incredible gumpla. You should absolutely check her out on social media. If you'd like to support Mobile Suit Breakdown and get access to our patron discord, bonus content, and more, you can do so at GundamPodcast.com Patreon. We'd also like to thank some listeners who have written reviews on iTunes, Kesser Drak in Canada, Malikiliki, Deathstrike, OG Trainer, and John64 and parenthesis and parenthesis 6 in the United States. And on Facebook, thank you to Tyler Halford, Izzy Mantic Palmero, Patrick Najar, and Sean Harland. Thank you all for your reviews, and we really do appreciate hearing what you think of the podcast, even if you think that I interrupt Nina too much. Listen, I know you all just want to hear Nina talk. I know that's why you're here. Except for that one guy. (laughs) I think if my opinions ruin Gundam for you, your Gundam enjoyment is too fragile. This week, we watch and discuss episode 5 of Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam, Father and Son, or Chichito Koto. And we research parenting in the 70s and 80s and angry ghosts. But first, a message from our sponsors, the Titans News Network. Welcome back to TNN, the Titans News Network, independent and unbiased reporting about our wonderful Titan protectors. Our top story tonight, our thoughts and prayers are with the family of Titans Lieutenant Hilda Bidon, senselessly killed by AUG terrorists during an attack in the Side 7 region of space. Reached for comment, Titans Captain Baskom pledged to swiftly bring the AUG and all of its supporters to justice, because victory is the greatest tribute we can give the fallen. In other news, after a thorough technical review, the Titans have decided to abandon the Mark II Gundam project and decommission all the Mark II Gundams. The technical director for the project, Lieutenant Franklin Bidon, could not be reached for comment, but test pilot Lieutenant Jared Mesa told our reporters that the Mark II was, quote, dumb and bad, and we didn't want it anyway. All the Mark IIs have been thrown away, and anything you heard about Mark IIs being stolen by a Titan's defector and used by Ayuk to defeat Hyzax in battle are completely untrue. Gosh, I sure am glad we don't have to worry about Ayuk getting their hands on any prototype Gundam-type mobile suits. That sounds really scary. Jeepers! 
So if you overhear anyone repeating baseless rumors about AUG, even friends or family members, be sure to report them right away to the Titan's tip line. And remember, this is TNN, and we are always watching. And now the recap for Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam Episode 5, Father and Son. Shards of debris glisten and sparkle as the stars and the rings of Saturn flow by. The body of a Xeon soldier lies suspended in the vastness of space. We cannot see through the helmet of their normal suit. The soul that used to be in this body will likely never be at peace, the narrator tells us, before Earth comes into view. A planet of intelligent life forms where people took the act of giving birth and raising children far too much for granted. Dust flows through the air of the space colony much like the debris flows through space. On the Alexandria, Basque and Jamaican discuss the requirement that all Titans be people born and raised on Earth. Jamaican thinks that to combat the strength of the Ayug pilots, they will need to relax the old restrictions, but Basque silences him, changing the subject to the pursuit of the Argama and the hunt for Ayug's base of operations. Basque is also concerned that Ayug's sympathizers have infiltrated the regular army and wants them purged quickly and without mercy. In the bustling hangar of the Argama, the Mark IIs are repainted while engineers and technicians make repairs. Under guard, Franklin looks on, yelling instructions and criticism at the crew. In a fit of irritation, he snatches a laser torch from the hands of a mechanic, beginning to work on the repairs himself. But it was a ruse! Franklin uses the laser torch to take Astonaji hostage. He demands to be taken to Eric Diaz, telling Astonaji that after Hilda's death, Basque owes him one and that all he wants is control of the Titan's tech division. The Rick Diaz is parked on the outside of the Argama, and once Astonaji has opened the cockpit, Franklin gives him a hard shove, sending him out into space. Argama, catch me! Astonaji calls as he drifts away from the ship. Franklin takes off in the Rick Diaz, piloting a course back to the Alexandria. As soon as they realize what he's done, the Argama's pilots take off after him, on his way into a mobile suit, Lieutenant Quattro finds Camille trying to get into one of the Mark IIs, with Rekoa just barely managing to hold him back. I apologize for my father. I'm the one who should be chasing him. There's no need for you to apologize, but could you fire at your own father? Camille frowns but does not respond, and Lieutenant Quattro takes off, flanked by his two wingmen, and rushes to catch up to Franklin. On the bridge of the Argama, Blex and Beckoner talk about the Red Comet. Beckoner was at the Battle of Abawaku, at the end of the One Year War. While he never saw the Red Comet's mobile suit, he could sense him on the battlefield. He gets that same feeling now from Lieutenant Quattro. And Blex finds himself thinking about how Quattro is trying to convey Zeon Dekun's dying wish to the Spacenoids. The Alexandria sends its Hyzax out as soon as it detects the approaching mobile suits. Jared talks his way into one, despite having been grounded. He is convinced that if he does well in battle, he can redeem himself. The Titans quickly find the other mobile suits, but can't understand why the Aeug suits are fighting each other. Managing to get away from Rekoa, Camille heads back to the hangar. I can't forgive my father for returning to his lover. This isn't something I can leave Lieutenant Quattro to handle. Rekoa is shocked, 
and tries to talk Camille out of going, but he tells her to stay out of it. How can someone like her understand his feelings in this situation? By the time Rekoa warns the crew, it's too late. Camille has already launched in one of the damaged Mark IIs. In the chaos of battle, Franklin thinks how lucky he is to be able to combat test the enemy's most advanced mobile suit. Visions of Margarita, his mistress, flash through his mind as he dodges fire and tries to get to the Alexandria. Catching up to his father, Camille springs forward, grappling the Rick Diaz. When Franklin shoves him away, he draws the Martu's rifle, but immediately freezes, unable to fire. Franklin can't believe it. I didn't raise you that way. This is how you thank me for everything I've done for you? Then opens fire on his own son. Camille dodges these attacks, yelling at his father to stop, to calm down. Franklin begins to rant. He's going to create even better mobile suits than the Mark II. He won't be defeated. Shots pass directly over Camille's head and arc through Franklin's Rick Diaz. Camille can hear a distorted, crackling voice tell him, This is a battlefield. Any hesitation could cost you your life. But he cannot tell who it is. Franklin ejects from the Rick Diaz, but is killed all the same when its generator explodes. The Hyzaks receive the order to retreat, returning to their ships and the search for Ayug headquarters, while the Argama sets a course for Earth. In a dim common room, Rekoa and Quattro try to comfort Camille. It was a battlefield. Franklin's death is not Camille's fault. Emma joins them, but nothing any of them say is of any use. Camille loved and hated his parents. They ignored him, and he hesitates to even call them real parents, but they were all he had, and now they are gone. Quattro brings up Shar Aznable, how Shar overcame his personal feelings to work toward his vision for a better world. I refuse to take on that responsibility, Camille insists. Eug and the Titans mean nothing to me. None of you can have anything to say to me about my parents. Overcome and agitated, Camille flees to his own room, where he can cry in peace. I feel like we should open our talkback for this episode with the sound of tinkling glass and a narration about child rearing. I can't tell if you're making a joke or if you're starting the talkback. Yes. This is the talkback for episode five of Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam, Father and Son, or Chichito Koto. This is the first time in Zeta that we've had an episode open with what is clearly an opening narration. What I thought this was going to be when we first get the tinkling glass and the shards of it was a flashback to Hilda's death, because it's exactly like when the capsule blasts apart and sends the glass everywhere. But instead, we get the remnants of a one-year war battlefield, complete with the body of a dead soldier. A Xeon soldier from the flight suit, and kind of anonymous. Yeah, we, we never see through the visor. We see space reflected in it, including a little sparkle that is reminiscent in some ways of the new type flash. Uh, it also looks a bit like in Zeta, often when people are looking out into space, they see a little flash or sparkle that is a mobile suit, uh, and it looks a bit like that. Now, you said this was the remnants of a one-year war battlefield, and I'm not entirely certain that that's true. It kind of looked to me like the rings of Saturn, like this body has been drifting outwards in the solar system ever since the battle. 
I I agree that it's Saturn, but you don't think the shards of glass are also meant to be space debris from the battle? I thought they were little little bits of ice from Saturn's rings. You make a good point because they do this neat little visual switch where at first it seems like it's glass and then it seems like it's ice. And then later we'll see the same kind of thing replicated, but now it's like dirt and dust inside of a colony. Right. It reminds me of the way Satoshi Kon would shoot his movies where you're constantly changing the perspective, but keeping some visual element intact. The main thing that it made me think of was, oh my God, the remnants of the war are just there. They're just space junk now. It's all just drifting. Nobody cleaned it up. I'm sure people tried to gather up what bodies they could, but even in some of the narrative moments of First Gundam, they mention, like, now this is all just space debris. It's all just space junk now. And it will be there forever. I mean, after World War II, you know, a lot of bodies were repatriated to their homelands, but a lot of stuff just got left there, especially ships that were sunk. I mean, there's a place in the South Pacific called Iron Bottom Sound, and it's called that because of how many warships sunk there and then just stayed there. But they get to become coral reefs. The stuff (laughs) out in space is just space junk waiting for somebody to crash into it. I don't know if this was a concern already by the 80s. I sort of doubt it. But in recent years, they've started talking about the amount of stuff we have put up into the atmosphere and into near orbit that's just left there. I mean, there's at, at the moment, it would be entirely too expensive to try to bring it back. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of old satellites that don't function anymore. We just leave them and put up new satellites. Like the space around us is slowly filling with stuff. And space is big and stuff is small, but eventually there's going to be enough stuff up there that, that it's, it's going to be dangerous. It's going to be a hazard. But the other thing that I felt watching this transition from the shards of what I thought was glass to the dead soldier to the dust in the colony was very much like all is dust. Like ultimately everything will return to dust mm-hmm. kind of a feeling. And this opening also foreshadows the way the episode is going to go. Because at the end, when Franklin dies, he's not incinerated the way somebody hit by a beam blast would be. He is hit by the blast wave from this explosion. And we can presume from the way it contorts his body that that did kill him. But then he's just thrown out into space, projected into the great black void like one more piece of debris. Not like one more piece of debris, as one more piece of debris. Well, his death strongly parallels Hilda's death. Again, he ejects from the mobile suit after it's damaged. Camille, in the Mark II, is in the process of reaching for him, just like he was reaching for Hilda in the capsule when the explosion, boom, sends him out into space in the same way that the shot from Jared, boom, sent Hilda out into space. But there's a difference when Camille reaches for his dad Because he's got the gun in the mobile suit's hand, and it kind of looked to me like he was pointing the rifle at his dad. I'm not sure he was reaching towards him to save him. Maybe he was. I think he was. I also think it's entirely possible Camille didn't know what his intentions were. I mean, he went out there, pointed the gun at his dad, and then didn't shoot. Mm -hmm. Grappled his dad, tried to calm his dad down. He doesn't know what his intention is here. Yeah. He doesn't. In that moment, I think he was probably trying to save his dad that's consistent with what he says a second later after the explosion hits his dad and Camille sort of pounds on the mobile suits console and he says you fool you idiot but is he talking about himself or his dad yes 
the final really significant part of the opening and uh, in a lot of ways the theme <laughs> of this episode and probably some other parts of Zeta as well. The narrator tells us that this is a world in which people take having and raising children too much for granted. This is one of those statements that I think are pretty common in Tomino's writing that have more than one meaning. Mm -hmm. Because I think this is, a, again, an overpopulation commentary. That, like, this assumption in society that, well, of course you'll have children. Like, of course you'll marry. Of course you'll have children. That's a thing that everyone does. That's never a thing somebody would choose not to do. That would be highly eccentric and unusual. This is just how everything works. Mm -hmm. I also strongly suspect it is about a shift in attitudes toward parenting and what constitutes a good parent. Or even an adequate parent. In, in this time. Mm -hmm. uh, do you mean the 80s or do you mean the UC 80s? Both, obviously. <laughs> We'll get into this a bit more when we talk about Franklin and Camille's battle, because I do think that that fight picks this apart a bit more oh, absolutely. in detail, but that because we are typically meant to be viewing this from the position of a younger person, that this attitude of like, well, of course, I'll have and raise kids that adults have has led them to be bad parents. <laughs> By the standards of their children. I mean, we can't deny that Franklin is a bad parent. I don't think anybody watching this show could come to a different conclusion. See, when you said there was one more bit of the opening narration that was going to be the theme of this episode, I really thought you were going to talk about the line about how like, the angry spirit of this dead Zeon soldier mm. is just drifting around, which is not really the theme of this episode, but it has been the theme of Zeta so far. This idea that... There are all of these angry ghosts of the war still drifting around, still causing chaos and misery. Even if these angry spirits were enemies of the state and you had to execute them, sometimes when they linger on, you have to do things to heal those wounds that were caused during these people's lives. And there's a sense then that no one has done that after the one-year war. No one has tried to heal the gap between the space noids and the earth noids, between the remnants of Xeon and the Federation. And as a result, all of these angry spirits possessed by the hatred and the injustice and the cruelty of the one-year war are still causing trouble. We get some additional information here about who Quattro is and who the people around him think he is. Speaking of angry, lingering ghosts from the one-year war. He gets a new type flash during the fight. We already suspected, but there's our proof. There's this very odd conversation between Beckner and Blex on the bridge of the Argama, where they are talking about the Red Comet, but also about Quattro. <laughs> Quattro has just launched. Blex is talking to Beckner on the bridge of their ship, and Blex is like, tell me, have you ever heard of the Red Comet? But Beckner responds, well, I was at the Battle of Abawaku. I never saw the Zeong, but I felt the presence of the Red Comet. And gosh, I'm really feeling Red Cometness coming off of that Quattro guy right now. And Blex responds to this like, hmm, yeah, that makes sense. He's trying to convey to all of us space noids the principles of Zeon Dekun. And so this seems like the two of them subtly confirming to each other 
suspicions that they've both been holding for a while. Yeah. And for different reasons. We get the sense here that Beckner is maybe a new type, or at least a little bit of one. He has a feeling from this Quattro guy. He's also mentioned getting a vibe from Camille. We know he's a veteran. We can kind of assume he's been in space a while now. Mm -hmm. Whereas Blex, given how many of the Titans know him personally, I find myself wondering if maybe Blex is a uh, recent emigre. He may very well be. There's then a moment during the scene that Tom and I have started calling the grief counseling when Quattro brings up Char. He asks Camille, have you heard of Char Asnabal? <laughs> and Rekoa gives him a look. There's sort of a sharp glance off to the side at him that to me feels like she knows. <laughs> <laughs> or at least strongly suspects. There have also been moments where I wonder if Emma suspects, even though Emma has had much less exposure to them. Mm -hmm. I get what you mean. Emma does kind of give him a weird look, but I, I don't know that there's enough there to, to read what that look means. This scene also gives us my favorite take on Char ever. Thank you, Camille, who describes Char as, I respect him. He was a fool. <laughs> That is a solid take, Camille. So good. If Camille would like to come to New York and shout his absolutely correct opinion on a busy street corner, we would appreciate that. I love the tone that Quattro uses when he brings up Char in that little therapy session because it sounds like a parent talking about Santa Claus. Santa Claus would really like you to go to bed right now. Char Aznable would really like you to listen to Quattro right now. Now Basque. The other angry ghost of the <laughs> one-year war, Basque Om who spends most of this episode transitioning from one ship to another, not doing anything terribly important. But at the beginning of the episode, he's having a conversation with Jamaican, and it's not clear 100% what they're talking about, but it kind of sounds like they're talking about new types. Oh, that is not how I interpreted that scene at all. Oh, yeah? Because Jamaican makes a comment that he thinks Basque might need to relax his principles a little bit, that... They're understaffed and for recruitment reasons. And Basque replies something along the lines of being from Earth isn't enough. You're, you don't think being from Earth is a good prerequisite. Mm -hmm. I interpreted this as being if we really want to keep the Titans staffed, we need to be willing to recruit space noids, which to the extent that space noids and new types are the same thing, <laughs> we're not actually describing different scenes. Mm -hmm. But we know it's not 100% overlap. True. So the reason I thought new types and not just space noids is the other line Jamaican says here, he's talking about Quattro in the Red Rictias, mm -hmm. and he says something about how this one mobile suit has the ability to affect others around it, mm -hmm. which could just be like, Quattro is such a good pilot and such a good leader. Or it could be that Quattro's new type abilities are in some way affecting all of those around him. And then Jamaican says, you need to relax your principles and accept other sorts of people into the Titans. And it kind of felt to me like they were talking about finding themselves a new type. They need their own Amaro Ray. I suppose I just interpreted that as our enemy is very strong. We need more people. Mm hmm. But yeah, it could totally be new types. And it's treated as a non-starter. <laughs> Basque basically ignores these comments and changes the subject. Mm -hmm. uh, we also get the first, well, perhaps not the first glimpse. We get a glimpse of some of the paranoia behind the goggles. <laughs> 
Yeah, he thinks as much as 50% of the Federation forces are AUG sympathizers. He even goes so far as to say members of AUG, although that seems like hyperbole. So he thinks half of their forces, not the special forces, the regular ones, are with the enemy to some degree and has ordered them purged. He has, in fact, told Jamaican to show no mercy. And look at the glee on Jamaican's face when he gets that order. And I immediately thought of the piece last week about Soviet government purges and defectors. There's a vicious kind of cycle in that, isn't there? Because when you were talking about it, you pointed out how most of the defections were actually triggered by purges happening at home, and the defector was afraid that they were going to be caught up in them. But naturally, if there's been a defection, that's going to trigger another round of purges. And that triggers more defections, and that triggers more purges, and that triggers more defections, and so on and so on. Well... Also that these are the types of governments that have this paranoia where you don't hear, oh, half of our forces sympathize with the other side and think, oh, this is a political problem. You think, okay, so we have to excise all of those people. (laughs) And it's clear that Basque in putting together the Titans, or at least putting together his group of Titans, has prioritized loyalty over practically every other attribute. It's not mobile suit piloting skill, or Jared wouldn't be there. Hmm. It's not ideological sympathy for the Titans, or Emma would never have been there. It's unclear why Emma was there. (laughs) I wonder if it has something to do with those ambitious parents that Emma mentioned. Is Emma, like Mirai, the scion of a powerful and influential family? Was she in the Titans because they wanted to be able to use the influence of her family? Well, and because her family considered it the most prestigious possible posting for her. That's true. Did it go the other way around? Did her family pull strings to get Emma into the best possible unit? Given how paranoid Basque seems and how willing he is to order ruthless purges within his own forces, it's really weird how Franklin thinks that he's going to be able to go back to the Titans and get some kind of reward from Basque. In a weird way, he reminded me of Basque in the moment when he thinks, I can go back and do whatever I like with the tech division. Because what he wants is to be king of his own little fiefdom, right? Mm -hmm. Part of Basque's insistence on personal loyalty is because he doesn't want to be held accountable by anybody. Uh, And Franklin betrays from moment one that he's pretty obsessed with the tech. He doesn't really care who it's for. He doesn't really care what it's about. It's very mercenary. And it's, for him, about creating newer, greater things all the time, regardless of the purpose. Uh, Yeah, he makes himself insufferable from moment one. (laughs) He's a prisoner, and he's still standing there micromanaging all the repairs on the mobile suits. He describes Basque's murder of his wife as, oh, good, now Basque owes me one. He tries to kill Astonaji. I thought for sure Astonaji was dead. I was like, oh, that's it. He's done for. And the fact that he gets rescued made me think maybe Zeta is less bloodthirsty (laughs) than First Gundam. Certainly many fewer people have died so far. But that would have been an awful way to die. Oh, absolutely terrible. Floating in space until you suffocate. Well, or... Or freeze. Or they get him back, but he's already suffered brain damage like Amaro's dad. Yeah. That's what I thought of. So he takes the Rick Diaz and he heads out and we get the the big combat of the episode. And we get a very interesting, weird (laughs) (laughs) parallel in Franklin's mind between the mobile suit and his lover, between fighting and sex. 
Because as he's thinking, oh, this is an amazing opportunity, I get to combat test an enemy mobile suit, he's breathing fast, he's sweating, in between the combat and us seeing him in the cockpit, we're seeing flashes, which I assume are also in his mind, of his lover in bed, you know, just barely covered by a sheet. He thinks to himself, no engineer could be luckier. And he's talking about the fight, but he's also talking about Margarita. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He never once throughout the course of this mentions Margarita. Never. But he's thinking of her. We see flashes of her barely covered by her sheet. And it's in this like pink, rose-colored kind of memory. It's kind of indistinct. It's clearly not romantic because it's always her in bed. Mm -hmm. It's never like him and her at a restaurant or at a theater or doing things together. It's never images of her. Her face is obscured by her hair. Like, Well, and she's drawn in a kind of indistinct way. Like there's not as much detail in her face as there is for a lot of other characters. Like she's not really a person. We don't get any sense of who she is. She, like the mobile suits, is a trophy. She is a thing for Franklin to achieve. And then we get to his fight with Camille, which... For me, it felt very much like Amaro's argument with his mother, particularly because Franklin also says, this isn't how I raised you. And I also wanted to say, you didn't raise him at all. <laughs> Except in this case, Franklin did raise him. Like Franklin created Camille and the violence, the chaos, the confusion, the ambivalence, the hatred and the love, all of it mixed together. Camille is a product of Franklin's neglectful, abusive parenting. And the laughable hypocrisy of, how could you point a gun at me? And then he is the first one to shoot. He's the oh, first yeah. one to shoot at Camille. I did my duty as a father and this is how you repay me? Die! Pew, 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 pew! So that line is where we come back to our discussion at the beginning when we mentioned attitudes about being a parent, right? Mm -hmm. Because we obviously don't agree with him, but... Franklin's position is he put a roof over Camille's head, he paid for clothes, he paid for after-school activities, he never went hungry. Franklin fulfilled his obligations as a father. Like, that that was the expectation. It's about providing materially, and as long as he did that, he was a good dad. Clearly, we don't agree. <laughs> Camille doesn't agree. You never understood me. Right. Those things don't feel important to Camille what he wanted was to feel understood as a person and seen as a person. We also get a few more lines from Franklin before he dies that I felt like were very significant. He's very angry and he is talking about why is everyone so obsessed with the Mark II? It's the end of the line. I'm going to make something bigger and better. And then he says, it won't be defeated. But what this feels like to me is generational conflict. Like, I won't be defeated by my son, the Mark mm. II slash Camille. I won't be displaced by this younger generation. I am still relevant. <laughs> I'm still strong. That's a great read on it. I thought it had more to do with his feeling like he had failed with Camille and Hilda with his first family, but that he was going to just do it again, start again, make a new family, make a new son, replace Camille with something better. That is also a fascinating read. Ooh. Again, we're talking about an era in which divorce was becoming more common. So that pattern of like first family, leave, second family was becoming more common. There were more men doing that. And we already know from First Gundam 
there's a lot of evidence in the text for Amuro's mother having had an affair and splitting up the family. We have a sense that Amuro's dad was creating the Gundam as a kind of surrogate child. Now with Franklin, we have a very explicit affair. We have him creating the Mark II and then talking about making something new and better. Tomino and the writers of Gundam are very focused on extramarital affairs and the effects that they have on families. In some ways, Franklin is more of a parallel to Komaria. Amuro's mother? Yes. Because he has an affair... And then Hilda, Camille's mom, is more of a parallel to Tem because we find out when Camille is grieving that from Camille's perspective, his mother basically ignored his father. She threw herself into her work in order to ignore the problems at home. I'm So I'm not certain the way in which Camille describes the situation, it's not clear to me whether... His mother ignored his father because of the affair, or his father had the affair because the mother was ignoring him. Not that he thinks either of them was, like, correct in their behavior. He right. thinks they were both bad. <laughs> he definitely blames both of them for the for situation. Yes, absolutely. But I don't get a sense of causality mm -hmm. from one event to the other. They and, feel like independently described conditions. And the situation Camille is talking about here, it's probably been going on so long that he doesn't know what started it. He doesn't know the causal ordering for it. It was just a bad situation for as long as he can remember that just kept getting worse. And none of the adults stepped up to try to make it better. It seems like a good moment to delve some more into Camille. When Camille first heads out, he says that he can't forgive his father for returning to Margarita, returning to his lover, which felt like an odd thing to say because Franklin never mentioned Margarita. We know later that he's thinking of her, but when he's talking about escaping, it's never, I have to get back to my beautiful young mistress. It's, I'm going to go stick one to, to Basque and be in charge of the tech division. Camille does seem very fixated on the affair. And we know that's not the only bad thing his father has done. Mm -hmm. We know his father is physically abusive. We know his father is distant. And then once he gets out into space, almost the first thing he yells at his dad, or it might be the first thing, is, how could you hurt mom by going for a younger woman? <laughs> it feels kind of edible, his fixation on this aspect of their relationship. Yeah. And then you noticed something really cool in the animation. It fades. There's like a crossfade from Angry Camille to Rekoa. Which mirrors a few episodes back when we had a direct cut from Franklin slapping Hilda straight into Rekoa fussing over Camille in a maternal kind of way. New mom. Space mom. Just like Amuro, Camille is projecting momness onto all the women that he meets. But it's not just momness, right? It's momness, but also horny teenage boy, like... Crushes. So many crushes. You're my mom and I love you. <laughs> <laughs> I got a very strange sense of role reversal when Camille, putting on his mature voice, says to Rekoa, like, this is personal between my dad and me. He's my father. I should be the one to deal with it. And he says something very similar to Quattro as well. There's a sense that this guy's bad behavior reflects poorly on me. I have to take care of it. And I say role reversal because at no point have we gotten a sense that Camille's parents took responsibility for his bad behavior. Mm -hmm. There was never, oh, 
our son betrayed the Federation. We will go handle it. <laughs> we need to fix this situation because it's our son. Or even our son keeps getting into fights at school. Our son has been arrested by the military police again. Like, there was no sense of responsibility for Camille's behavior from either of them. And they even have a conversation about it. This is the one where Hilda says, can you believe that it was Camille who did this? And Franklin says, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. How can you think about Camille when we ourselves might be in danger? And yeah, when, when he goes out there to fight, I truly don't think he had clear in his mind what he was going to do. And Quattro confronts him about this before he actually goes out. Quattro says to him, not don't go, but are you sure you could shoot your dad? Because <laughs> if you can't, don't go. And if you can, by all means, is the implied statement there. Right. Camille points the gun, but he can't shoot. He tackles his dad. He tries to get his dad to calm down. Quattro steps in. He appears to be maybe trying to rescue his dad, maybe trying to finish him off. I don't know. And that ambivalence, which is not to say neutrality, but strong opposing feelings, becomes even clearer in the conversation that he has with Emma, Rekua, and Quattro, where they're trying to help him process his grief. And they're is all terrible. They're, trying they're to all do? terrible. Well, your I your take on what Quattro is up to is I think very good. I think Rekoa and Emma are trying to help him process what's happened. If they're trying to help him process what's happened, they are the worst oh, people in the world at doing that. Absolutely. They definitely are. But I, I do think that's the intention. But not from Quattro. Mm-hmm. Well, so explain your theory. Like you said, Emma and Rekoa are kind of doing what looks like it's meant to be sympathy. They're not very good at it, but they make mistakes that seem reasonable, like the mistakes that a real person would make in that situation, dealing with a friend or colleague who had suffered some sort of horrible personal tragedy. But Quattro doesn't make the right kind of mistakes for that, <laughs> because Quattro keeps trying to turn Camille's rage, his despondency, his sorrow, all of these powerful emotions, Quattro is trying to turn them towards the cause, the great cause. He's trying to take advantage of Camille's vulnerability and make Camille useful to him, make Camille subsume all of his rage in his pursuit of Quattro's cause. Rico is quick to point out to him that this was the wrong tack to take <laughs> at this time. Yeah. Well, Quattro brings up Char during this conversation. And although we never saw it happen, this is probably very similar to what Char did with Lala. Here is a powerful young new type, an orphan now, who has had just a terrible life experience and is feeling very vulnerable. And Char was able to turn Lala into a perfectly loyal perfect little weapon. And it really seems like that's what Quattro is trying to do to Camille here. Don't you think you'd feel better if you just dedicated yourself undyingly to the cause of Spacenoid independence? To making the world a better place for, for other kids? Right. And everything he says is taking something Camille is feeling, something Camille is saying, and trying to redirect it. Oh, your childhood was terrible. Don't you think that you should dedicate yourself to changing the world so that other children don't have to go through that? I realize we should probably clarify a bit also what we mean when we say that Emma and Rekawa are bad <laughs> at sympathy. <laughs> Teachable moments. <laughs> so the first thing Emma says when she comes in is, uh, my own parents are great. I'm sure they'll understand what I, what's happened to me. Well, 
So not exactly, right? She says, like, my parents are very ambitious people, but I'm sure they'll understand the decision I had to make. So she creates this false equivalency, like, all parents must be like my parents, you know, they understand and they still love you. And Camille is very quick to say, oh, that's so cool. That's nice for you. <laughs> I'm really glad that your parents are great now that mine are dead. And he bounces back and forth between, you know, my parents and they weren't even parents. You know, they were terrible, but they were all I had. And then with both Recoa and Quattro, nothing Camille feels is right. You know, he complains about his parents and Recoa almost like recoils. She seems strongly disapproving of him saying negative things about his dead parents. Like, oh, you're going to regret that you said these things. No, he's not. And he's entitled to feel negative things about them even though they've died. But then on the other hand, when he feels sad, when he's grieving that they're gone because, you know, maybe things could have gotten better if there'd been time. Now, none of it can ever be put right. And they were all he had. Quattro basically tells him, oh, you need to get past your personal feelings. Just don't, just don't feel that. Just don't talk about it. <laughs> and so everywhere he turns, everyone's telling him that what he's feeling is wrong. What he's feeling is bad. He shouldn't talk about it. That's how therapy works, right? <laughs> yeah. The, defin- the therapist tells you not to talk about your feelings. And that whatever feelings you're feeling are wrong. The feeling you're feeling is just called a bad feeling you shouldn't feel. During that therapy session, and really a couple of times throughout the episode, Camille expresses what Nina has described as ambivalence, a feeling of blaming both of his parents, hating but also loving both of his parents. And he says some very similar things about Ayug and the Titans. This is really the first time that he says, I don't care about Ayug or the Titans. That has nothing to do with me. It's not my problem. Which is very different from the attitude he took in the first couple of episodes, and it really does seem like his parents' deaths have changed Camille's feelings on the matter. And his real-life exposure to Ayug. I mm-hmm. mean, it was all conceptual to him before. He knew what he could glean from underground news reports. It all seems so heroic and rebellious, and then he gets there, and it's like just the army, but slightly different. And he has that comment about his mother, is military work so important? Mm-hmm. And talking about how he felt ignored by both his parents. And of course, Quattro jumps in to be like, have you considered dedicating your entire life to military work? So I think it's intentional here that we're seeing Camille projecting this feeling that he has about his parents as both being at fault for all of the bad things that have happened. He's projecting it onto Ayug and the Titans. They sort of stand in for his parents, and he blames both of them for all of the bad things that have happened, for the deaths of his parents. If not for Ayug, if not for the Titans, if not for the clash between the two of them, his life would be very different, and his parents would probably be alive. Now, that might not be better, but in a state of grief the way Camille is, that question of whether it would actually be better doesn't really come into the picture. But I think a lot of Camille's attitude and his actions can really be explained by understanding that he's in a state right now where he blames both sides and everyone around him for the horrible things that have happened to him. We have some miscellaneous notes. First, I have been waiting to see some of the parallel storytelling that was so prominent in First Gundam, and I think we get just a couple of scenes, but we get Camille and Jared both lying to somebody in order to get into the cockpit of a mobile suit. So do you think there's a parallel between Jared, who has developed almost a, a desperate obsession with like, oh, if I can just do well in combat, if I can just improve my combat statistics, 
uh, I'll redeem myself. Like mm-hmm. I'll, I'll get, I'll earn respect. If I can just be a better pilot, everything will go right. Everything will be okay. And Camille needing to fix the situation with his father, whatever that means. I do think so. In both cases, they feel a very personal sense of shame over something that's happened. For Jared, it's his own failures in combat that he needs to absolve himself. He needs to reclaim his honor by going out there and doing something. But for Camille, it's this feeling that he is responsible for his dad's bad behavior and he needs to go out and he needs to fix it himself. Do you see any other parallels between them in the episode? Not yet. Except possibly to the degree that both of them are having these feelings as a result of Hilda's death or that Mm. Hilda's death is this precipitating factor. Jared clearly started to feel a lot of self-doubt when he found out what was in the capsule. <laughs> Even before that, we, we mentioned how uneasy he feels when he blows the capsule and it doesn't explode. Mm-hmm. And I think he is probably deep down experiencing a, a crisis of identity mm-hmm. <laughs> over being a soldier and being a titan. Well, and turning out not to be that good at it. And then... After what happened with his mother, Camille feels all the more determined to try to fix the situation with his father because he couldn't fix the situation with his mother. He couldn't save her. But maybe he can stop his dad from leaving with the Rick Diaz. Maybe he can do something here. Mm -hmm. Jared and Camille do seem to be the only characters who are still really affected by what happened to Hilda. Yeah, we talk about Basque and Jamaican's coldness. We talk about Franklin seeming very mercenary, but Ayug are not exactly touchy-feely types. No. Uh, I was frankly stunned by the callousness of Blex and Beckoner being like, eh, oh well, Camille took a mobile suit, we'll get to see how he does in combat. (laughs) It's like a kid who has just taken one of your most valuable pieces of machinery, but you think he could maybe be a valuable asset to you. And so, sure, let him risk his life, whatever. Not a big deal. There's... They are not thinking about what's best for Camille. They are thinking of Camille as an asset to develop for Ayug. Well, and they have no obligation to think about what's best for Camille. That's his parents' job. (laughs) I would like to think that as a society, we should be thinking about what's best for children and young people. That, That attitude of like, oh, well, it's their parents' responsibility leads to a lot of problems. But we don't need to get into that right now. Well, and what happens when no one else takes responsibility for it and when the parents turn out to be like Camille's parents? We get some new music in this episode that I enjoyed very much. The battle music, the fight music (laughs) with, I think it's a xylophone, but I'm not a confident enough ear to say definitively that it is. But yeah, I'm going to call it battle xylophone. (laughs) It's great. I love it. We also get the very mournful tune at the end of the grief counseling scene when Camille leaves the room. The other cool sound thing was that after Franklin has died, Quattro is talking to Camille and there's a lot of distortion. Basically, it's unclear if the distortion is real or a reflection of Camille's emotional state. And there's enough distortion that Camille doesn't know it's Quattro. When he hears it, Camille's like, who is that? We recognize Quattro's voice. But it's not clear if it's a radio transmission that Camille is physically hearing with his ears or if it's a new type communication, if this is a thought projection that Camille is receiving. I think it has to be a new type thing now that I'm thinking about it, because anytime we've seen mobile suits communicate, they have to be touching. 
Though that might explain the amount of distortion, mm. that Quattro is just close enough that he can get a radio signal off, but with a ton of distortion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's unclear, but a very cool effect. Did you think it was Quattro who shot Franklin's Rictias? Yes. I thought the same thing too. Well, because he immediately afterwards says, hesitation can get you killed. But I don't think Camille knows it was Quattro who shot the suit. Really? I feel like his attitude toward Quattro would have been different. Hmm. Because in the therapy scene, Camille says, like, I, I pointed a gun at my dad. And Quattro says, well, if you hadn't done it, somebody else would have done it eventually. Which is actually what happened. <laughs> I feel like that scene would have gone differently if Camille knew it was Quattro who did the shooting. I don't know. I'm not sure what Camille thought was going to happen here, that he was going to be able to capture his dad and bring him back alive. I think that's what he hoped for, or to convince his dad to come back. But you don't think in that therapy scene that if Camille knew Quattro was the one who destroyed the Rictias and essentially killed his dad, that Camille would have said something more like, my name is Camille Badan, you killed my father, prepare to die. Like, who does he think did it? The crew is not that big. <laughs> I, I assume he thinks it was a stray blast. Hmm. Hmm. And we get a little bit of sexism. There's a meeting of some members of the crew of the Argama, and who is serving the drinks but Rekoa? It's a cafeteria. Get your own drinks. <laughs> yes, I realize that as the lowest ranking person in the room, that would probably also be her responsibility. But I think it's worth pointing out that in a contemporary workplace, one would hope a manager would look at this situation and say, oh, it looks bad to have the only woman in the crew serve the drinks at the meeting. This is, however, a thing that is quite common in Japan and a thing Japanese women uh, who work in offices still uh, complain about and have to deal with a lot. But this expectation that like, oh, you'll make and serve the tea. Regardless of whether you are the most junior person there or not. Isn't it a little weird how Quattro puts his hand on Rekawa's arm at the end? There could be something between them. She doesn't look at it with a friendly eye, though. No, but it's not necessarily a look of total rejection either. She seems nonplussed. She doesn't move away, and she doesn't seem like the sort of person to put up with anyone's nonsense. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's an uncomfortable moment. It felt like a power move. I thought it felt like he was comforting himself. Perhaps. Like talking about Char dredges up a lot of painful old memories, and he also clearly mishandled the situation with Camille. And Reko has just criticized him for his mishandling of it. Still, to me, this felt like his seeking physical touch was about wanting to be comforted. Mm. Rather than necessarily trying to creep on Reko or intimidate her in any way. Mm-hmm. His body language didn't feel intimidating. His body language just felt weird. He isolates himself through that whole scene. Everyone else is sitting on these couches around a table and he's standing behind one of the couches and off to the side. With his arms crossed. Let me tell you kids about a guy I know. His name was Shar Aznable and he was the coolest person in the whole war. In our research this week, we looked into parenting trends in the 70s and 80s, as well as angry ghosts. You can't really look at parenting in 70s and 80s Japan without first looking at the history of family structures in Japan. From the Edo period, extended families tended to live in one home, the head of the family plus 
their wife and children, his parents, some extended family members, servants, lodgers, apprentices, etc. A wife and mother's primary responsibility was to take care of her husband and her in-laws and manage the household. Children were seen as belonging to the whole house, the family, the home, and responsibility for their care was more distributed across people. Fathers held primary responsibility for education, especially for boys, but for girls as well. And in villages, this extended even beyond a single home, with childcare shared among multiple families or even among the whole village, as needs dictated. 1854, Perry shows up. The Japanese government is consolidating and centralizing power and uses family as a metaphor. Everyone has their role. Everything is highly stratified. This is where you start to get the phrase ryosai kenbo, which means good wives, wise mothers, mm. which was used to refer to women focusing on the home and children, leaving breadwinning and civic life to their husbands. You also, in the 1900s, start to see the term bose ai, maternal love, as describing something distinct from other types of love a child can experience and essential to the child's optimal development. However, even into the 1930s, there's evidence of significant paternal involvement. Textbooks for boys and girls had instructions on how to change a diaper. This was a thing men were assumed to need to know. Uh, and the realities of daily economic life meant that most women had to work, and there was significant government-supported childcare. Then we get to World War II. We get even more gender-based polarization of roles. The father becomes a distant figure, both emotionally and physically. He's serving in the war. He's a soldier. And mother is left to handle all matters related to the home. This continued after the war. The shift in the economy from agriculture to manufacturing meant there was more demand for full-time workers, and the government encouraged women to stay home and support their husband in that role. Companies started to use educational achievement to choose workers, and so mothers were expected to provide educational support at home. So these increasing demands at home and the lack of part-time opportunity made working outside the home impossible for hmm. most mothers. In the 50s, we see more young people moving to cities, often leaving their extended family behind, so you no longer have these large extended family households. You get the emergence of the salaryman family, where the husband works full-time. And in Japan at that time, that would have meant six days a week, with long commutes, with mandatory socializing after work. <laughs> so he might only have seen his children awake, like one day a week. Ah. <laughs> uh. Well, and this is also a time when those huge family homes where you could have an extended family started to be supplanted by much, much smaller apartments or small houses in the cities where you barely had enough space for the nuclear family. True. Because of that, in these households, you have the wife overseeing the household, but not under the instruction of her mother-in-law. Like in those old Edo period households, the eldest son's wife is like the lowest ranked person in the house. <laughs> She's in theory being instructed in the management of the home by her mother-in-law. I'm sure in some cases that was a positive relationship and in some a negative one. <laughs> you tend to hear it as more of a negative one. Hmm. So in these salaryman households, the young wife has much more independence because she doesn't have elderly family members to look after or take instructions from. They were managing the household, they were managing their husband's salary, left to their own devices most of the time, 
They didn't have a family business they had to work in. They became effectively the family's main representative in the community because the husband wouldn't have had time to engage with other families in the neighborhood, really. In the 1960s, we start to see government programs promoting women's role as homemakers. The government commissioned studies that emphasized the importance of early childhood education and mother-child bonding. By the 1970s, educational pressure had increased even further. Mothers were expected to help their children study, make sure they attended cram school, keep their child motivated, and look after their child's mental health under these very stressful, pressure-filled conditions. You, you see the term kyoiku mama, or education mother. <laughs> and this is also a time when the number of students going through the educational system, continuing on into non-mandatory high school, and then continuing on into university, surged dramatically. There was a massive, massive increase in the number of students competing for slots in higher education. And while higher education was expanding, not fast enough. So the level of competition, when you think about the Japanese education system and how intense the competition is, all of the testing in order to get into those higher education institutions, this is really when that starts to become so intense, so massive, and such a huge part of people's lives. Yeah, there's a strong sense that success in education meant success through your whole life. And even for girls who were not anticipated to work for very long, if at all, educational achievement made you an attractive bride. It's also in the 70s that we see children of the first round of salaryman families come of age and start families of their own and start to do some things that are a reaction against that. They saw that their parents had nothing in common, no shared interests, no shared friends, and their fathers had been absent, that their fathers lacked interests outside of work to occupy them and give them fulfillment in their retirement. You begin to see what was called at the time the new family, more love marriages. If you hadn't known this, Japan has a long history of matchmaking for marriages. In the 70s, there was still a lot of matchmaking for marriages, but you started to see people take personal compatibility more into account and friendship and emotion. <laughs> uh, you also started to see fathers spending more time with their family, both in household activities like errands and shopping, and also in leisure activities. However, even in these new families, that tended to taper off as the father entered his 30s and needed to spend more time at work if he wanted to succeed there. And as children got older, and they and their mothers had to spend more time on homework and test prep. Still, there was an increased focus on maintaining more of a relationship between spouses, and at least trying to spend time together as a family. In the 1980s, we get a brief blip <laughs> of more women pursuing higher education and more women continuing to work even after marrying and having children. The booming economy meant there was a lot of demand for workers. As soon as the bubble burst in the 90s, these gains were lost. So a woman like Hilda, while more common at the time that Zeta was made, would still have been quite unusual. She is seriously bucking social norms, and by a lot of the standards of her time, is a bad mother. Camille is doing well in school, so points for her there. <laughs> but his emotional state is clearly not good at all, and he's constantly getting into trouble. I don't feel like I know enough about Camille's family situation or Hilda as a person to judge her as a mother myself. I obviously don't think she's a bad mother just because she works. <laughs> but at the time, 
there would have been a certain sense of that, that how can she possibly maintain the level of involvement in her child's life that is expected of her if she is working outside the home full time. And we see that by the time Zeta was coming out, there's more emphasis being placed on the quality of the parents' relationship with each other, as well as the father spending more time with the family. So under this changing way of looking at fatherhood, Franklin also failing. <laughs> we discussed at one point why Hilda might stay with Franklin despite his abuse and his affair. In addition to what we mentioned about abusive relationships, my reading about parenting brought up another point. Japan has these family registries that are hugely important and they record all divorces. <laughs> family registry records are often required when you apply to school, when you apply for jobs, or when you enter marriage negotiations. And a divorce recorded in your part of the family registry can reflect badly on you, making life more difficult for children of divorce even long after the divorce itself is finalized. One source I was reading mentioned that in Japan, the age group that gets the most divorces are older people whose children are already in a job, already married. <laughs> like after everything that might be hampered by a divorce is handled, then <laughs> some elderly people get divorced. Yeah, Hilda might have felt that the best way to continue protecting Camille to the extent that she was looking out for his interests was to remain in that marriage. I also found a source that talked about what constitutes good parenting from a mother or a father at this time in Japan. From a mother, it's a lot of physical affection, uh, especially with young children, carrying them all the time, feeding them whenever they're hungry, soothing them whenever they get agitated. Co-sleeping is really common in Japan and continues to be basically until there's another younger child <laughs> who needs the spot or until children are old enough to need their own room to study. So like junior high. Co-sleeping, if you don't know, is where the baby sleeps in bed with mom and dad. Yeah, on the futon. Mothers are also expected to teach a lot of social skills, kindness, empathy, politeness, how to fit into society. It's very important for Japanese parents that their children do these things because they understand why it's important, not simply because they are told that they are receptive to input from adults rather than simply obedient to instructions. Mm -hmm. This involves uh, a certain degree of watching from a distance rather than confronting bad behavior. An example they gave was a child gets into a fight with another child at the playground because they won't share a toy. And the mother just watches and sees what happens. And afterwards, as they're walking home, it's like, oh, I wonder how that kid felt when you wouldn't share the toy with them. That must have been very upsetting for them. Like more about the feelings of the people involved and trying to teach that empathy than about rushing in necessarily and being like, you have to share. <laughs> oh, it must have been really upsetting for that Titan when you punched him in the face. I wonder how he felt about that. And then we get to what constitutes good parenting from a father. The emphasis on physical proximity left very little room for paternal involvement in early childhood. If mom is always carrying, feeding, comforting baby, and her doing so is essential for baby's well-being, because remember, mother love is the important kind. Nowhere does father love get mentioned. <laughs> There's not much for fathers to do there. Most Japanese fathers at the time considered parenting of similar importance to their work, but certainly not more important. 
From the Showa period onward, we see fathers as the frightening and strict figure in the household, which is actually counter to earlier perceptions where the mother was the strict one and the father was the nice one. Uh, fathers became more likely to use corporal punishment than mothers. In surveys, only one-third of Japanese fathers indicated that interacting with their children was an important part of fatherhood. What? Um, <laughs> hang on. <laughs> what do they think fatherhood is? Supporting the mother. Mm. Yeah. Most of the survey respondents said that the primary role of a father was to provide emotional support to the mother. This is a system that provides for no father-child relationship. In surveys, fathers indicate that they'd like to play more with their children, but there's no interest in providing more of the routine care, baths, school help, or discipline. One source summed it up by saying that in Japanese families, fathers have been rendered peripheral. They aren't part of the daily life of the household. Their presence is, in fact, a disruption in the household. Is it any surprise, then, that having provided Camille with a home, a good education, money, and opportunity for extracurricular activities, and so on, Franklin considers his fatherly commitments fulfilled? Hmm. In case anyone has questions about the corporal punishment aspect, I recommend referring back to an earlier episode of the podcast where I discuss this extensively. I will say, however, that corporal punishment is more common and more widely accepted in Japan than it is in the U.S. That was episode 1.9, Paranoia and Treachery. I will say that however different the cultural perception of corporal punishment was, especially back then in the mid-80s, Franklin doesn't slap his son. Franklin punches his son. And that's different. Even if corporal punishment is more okay in Japan of the 1980s, what Franklin does probably exceeds even that. So I'm not sure, actually. I'm not certain. I'm not an expert on <laughs> attitudes on parenting in Japan, but I think what Franklin does is bad not because of the level of violence, but because it's an emotional reaction. Mm. It's he's angry, so he hits his son, not you've done something wrong and I'm teaching you that it's wrong through physical punishment. One of the other things that came up when I was doing this research, for most Japanese parents, even while they acknowledge their parents' flaws, they tend to contextualize that in a way that excuses their parents a lot of the time. And because they do that, they tend to see their parents as a mentor, as someone they want to emulate, as someone who did their best, rather than most American parents who tend to think about their own parents and be like, and I'm not going to do that, and I'm going to do better than X, Y, and Z, and I'm not going to make those mistakes. Based on all of this, what I see in Camille's family is conflict. Like, none of the people in this family agree on what the family should be. The father is one of these Showa-style scary dads who's like, I'm providing for all your material needs. What more do you want from me? The mother is a full-time working woman. The son is much more like those children of the first salaryman families who is like, no, wait, I want you to be engaged <laughs> with me and spend time with me and know me as a person. And this is a series made at a time when at least the more senior people in the Gundam staff would have been starting their own families. By now, Tomino probably has his first daughter. Ah, I was just going to ask. 
Yeah, it's much harder to find personal information about minor Japanese celebrities than it is in the US for some reason. But while I don't know the ages of Tomino's two daughters, the elder of them has probably been born at this point. This kind of conflict was probably not all that uncommon in the 80s. People with very different views of what family should be as some of that was fluctuating and changing. And that means it's now time to talk about the angry ghosts of the One Year War. We know that the opening narration in this episode is important. This is the first time in Zeta that we've had a narrator, and what the narrator says about parents and children goes to the very heart of this episode. And it helps us to understand the conflict between Camille and his parents, which reaches its final tragic act with Franklin trying to kill his own son and then dying before Camille's eyes. But that's not the only line in the opening narration. There is one other line. And what about that one? Seemingly disconnected from everything else in the episode, we see the corpse of a Xeon soldier drifting through space, and we hear the narrator say, The soul that used to be in this body will likely never be at peace. What does that mean? And why is it so important? The dead don't vanish, but linger. Ghosts drifting in the wind. In the Japanese traditional conception of death, the spirit of the deceased leaves what was once its body, but remains nearby, drifting between the world of the living and an invisible realm that overlaps our own. For 49 days, the typical spirit wanders the family house and hangs out on the roof while the family is in mourning. During this time, the mourners wear somber clothing, abstain from meat, and avoid Shinto shrines, and every seven days, they perform a ceremony designed to help the ghost move on. Seven here is a crucial number for Buddhist religious reasons. There are seven rituals. One is performed every seven days, and that is what gets you to that 49-day mourning period. Which is seven weeks. All of this is necessary because immediately after death, the lingering spirit is unstable and impure still trapped by earthly desires. Only the efforts of the living, in the form of rituals and prayers dedicated to the departed, can purify the ghost and allow it to move on to the land of the dead, where it becomes a powerful guardian watching over its living descendants and coming back to Earth to party with them every August. He's talking about Obon. But sometimes the rituals are not performed, or they don't work. Sometimes the spirit isn't just unstable, sometimes it's angry. These are onryo, vengeful ghosts that remain in the physical world in order to exact vengeance for wrongs they suffered while they were alive. The vengeance they seek is often personal. A mistreated wife's onryo terrifies her cruel husband until he dies. An exiled noble's onryo pursues his rivals. A servant murdered by her master for breaking some expensive dishes returns in the form of those same dishes to haunt him to his grave. Wow. He threw her in a well and she emerged from it as a stack of flying magical dishes. What? But some who die, die embittered to the whole world. And these onryo can cause earthquakes, fires, famines, droughts, and every kind of natural disaster. In the Heian era, these powerful, vengeful ghosts were believed to drift in the skies above the human world, a bit like frozen corpses drifting through space. From that high position, they wrought vengeance on the world, unless they could be appeased in some fashion. 
And this led to the creation of elaborate rituals that could be strategically deployed whenever the realm was beset by disaster. Experts would be consulted to determine which recently deceased persons might still be holding grudges against the emperor, his family, or the high ministers actually running the show. Then they had to figure out what the vengeful Onryo actually wanted, and then just give it to them. Because these spirits can't be destroyed or dispelled, they can only ever be appeased. Often, this was a simple matter of performing the right religious rituals for the benefit of the Onryo, revoking any punishments that had been inflicted upon the deceased. And of course, nobody ever objects to recalling someone from exile after they've already died. <laughs> and of course, giving them posthumous promotions. There's an echo of this, I think, in those two rank promotions that the fallen members of the White Base crew receive during the Jaburo arc of First Gundam. If the deceased left behind descendants, and those descendants were still suffering persecution because of their relationship to the deceased, then appeasing the angry spirit often required pardoning those descendants, too. It was also not uncommon to just issue general amnesties for political prisoners as part of propitiating the angry spirits. Which makes one wonder, what happened to the Republic of Zeon? What happened to those people? Hmm. No one has mentioned it. Every mention of Zeon so far has been as like remnants of the Zeon army still causing trouble. Nobody has mentioned a Republic of Zeon. Nobody has mentioned a society. <laughs> so, uh, well, what happened? Spoilers. Uh, but they are going to tell us. Kind of. <laughs> he just shrugged at me. <laughs> But I want to know. You're just going to have to watch all of Gundam with me to find out. There are Onryo, however, who want to be honored in other ways. In 1185, the last remnants of the Taira clan met their Minamoto rivals in a naval battle at a place called Dan no Ura in the Shimonoseki Strait between Honshu, the largest of the Japanese main islands, and Kyushu, the southernmost and westernmost of the main islands. Their war had dragged on for five years, turning one way and then the other, but now the tide was decisively against the Tyra. Their whole force was committed to this battle, and they even had with them the child emperor, Antoku, with his Tyra mother and grandmother, and the three pieces of imperial regalia said to have been gifted to the imperial family by the sun goddess herself, a sword, a mirror, and a gemstone. It was not enough. Though they fought well, the Tyra were outnumbered and then betrayed by one of their most important allies. When they realized all was lost, rather than give the Minamoto the satisfaction, the Tyra lords, one after another, plunged into the icy water and let their heavy armor drag them under. The emperor's grandmother, widow to the Tyra lord Kiyomori, joined them, holding the six-year-old emperor Antoku in her arms, the imperial sword thrust into her belt, and the imperial gem in her hand. She would have taken the mirror under the waves, too, but she could not find it. They drowned there, and the handful of Tyra who survived were soon executed. There are a few stories about the spirits of the Tyra dead lingering near Dan no Ura, and they're great. So I'm going to share a couple with you now. I also have a quick question. Mm -hmm. Supposedly, those treasures were recovered. That's part of one of the stories I'm okay. about to tell. <laughs> okay. Because they they are said to exist now. I don't remember which temple keeps them, but like every new emperor goes and visits them. It's part of becoming emperor of Japan. And so 
Yeah, it's like, oh, if they sank to the bottom of the sea, how did they come back? So first up, I have the story of the crabs. <gasps> the crabs! Kani. When the Tyro warriors drowned during the battle, their bodies were eaten by the local crabs. Their spirits became reincarnated in those very same crabs, which explains the peculiar shell shape of the crabs living in that area. Each one strongly resembles the face of an angry man. So now these Tyra crabs patrol the water, still hunting for the imperial regalia they lost during the battle. According to the official story, the gemstone was found by divers after the battle. Accounts about the fate of the sword differ. Some say that the one lost at Dan no Ura was not the real sword. Others say it was recovered, but some believe that the sword is still down there, guarded by an army of very angry crabs. I just pulled up pictures. They totally do look like angry faces. Did you look at pictures mm -hmm. of them? Yeah. We will put a link in the show notes because it's wild. The second story is about a blind Biwa player named Hoichi. The Biwa is a fat-bodied, short-necked lute that is used to accompany narrative storytelling. And this Hoichi was a wandering bard, part of a tradition of blind performers who preserved and performed one of the versions of the stories recounting the fall of the house of Taira. So, he had come to the shore near Dan no Ura, to a temple built by the local people to appease the restless Taira spirits. Centuries of regular rituals performed at the temple had worked as intended, and the Tyra spirits were calmer now. But still, they drifted around. Sometimes, on still nights, a person lying awake might hear the clank of armor or the twang of a bowstring. At the temple, Hoichi stopped to rest and pray. He was still there that night when a young retainer came to the temple and summoned him. My master came to visit the scene of this famous battle. He has heard you are skilled at reciting the story of the Tyra's fate, and wishes you to come at once to perform the tale. Hoichi was honored, and with the retainer leading him by the hand, he traveled down to the beach, then on to the gates of a great house. Inside, Hoichi was taken to a great room filled with people. He heard fine silks rustling, and the murmur of dozens of soft conversations wandered around his ears. Sitting on a cushion on a floor, he bowed in each direction. An old woman's voice, stern and commanding, silenced the room. Hoichi, you will recite for us the story of the Taira. And so he began, though he objected that the tale would take many nights to perform in full. Start at the beginning, the woman told him, and tell it all. Never had his voice been so clear, his fingers so deft. When he sang about the pleasures of the imperial court, the audience sighed, and when he talked of tragedy, they wept. Each night he returned to the great house to continue the tale. The servants at the temple became curious about his nightly disappearances, and one night they followed him down the steep path to the beach. They found Hoichi sitting on the sand, strumming his biwa and singing about the fate of the Tyra. But there was no great lord, no stern lady, no multitude of listeners. The only ones there to hear him were the crabs. Creepy and amazing. In the great tradition of ghost stories, I took a few liberties with that second one. The standard version is a lot more Buddhist and gruesome. We will link it in the show notes in case you want to read it. After Dan no Ura, the Minamoto had won the day. They controlled the emperor, their rivals were exterminated, and they ruled the realm in all but name. Except they did not get to enjoy their victory for very long. The Minamoto turned on each other as soon as their war with the Taira was over, and the general who triumphed at Dan no Ura 
was hunted down and executed by his own brother. That brother, the leader of the Minamoto, died young, and all the power he had accrued was immediately seized by his father-in-law. There are some who say the lingering ghosts of the Taira got their vengeance on the Minamoto after all. There's one more aspect of this that we need to discuss, and that's anniversary memorials. The anniversary of a death is important, but some anniversary years are more important than others. Special memorial services are held on the 3rd, 7th, and 13th anniversaries. Since the one-year war ended in UC80, all of those who were killed during the war, but never properly mourned and honored, all those Xeon ghosts lingering in the boundless reaches of space like so many drowned Tyro warriors, they would all mark their special memorial years in UC83, UC87, and UC93. In what I'm sure is a complete coincidence, Stardust Memory is set during UC83, Zeta Gundam is set during UC87, and Char's Counterattack is set during UC93. And not for nothing, Unicorn is set three years after Char's Counterattack. Yeah, I'm sure that's a total coincidence. This is not a full research piece, but... Given the content of the episode and its name, I found myself thinking about the Cat Stevens song, Father and Son. If you're not familiar with it, I will provide a YouTube link. As per its Wikipedia page, quote, the song frames a heartbreaking exchange between a father not understanding his son's desire to break away and shape a new life, and the son, who cannot really explain himself, but knows that it is time to leave and seek his own destiny. So, of course, I had to look and see, like, well, was Cat Stevens popular in Japan? You know, is there a possibility that this could be relevant? When did the album come out? The album is from 1970. However, Cat Stevens' first ever live album was recorded in Tokyo. The album's called Saturnite, Live in Tokyo and was released only in Japan to support UNICEF, and that album was released in 1974. So it's entirely possible that when they were naming the episode, they were thinking about this song, or had heard the song, or it could also be a coincidence, I don't know, but I think it's pretty cool. We have abundant evidence at this point that Tomino and company are influenced by Western music, there's Char Aznable's name coming from sure. Charles Aznavour, the French-Armenian crooner. We know that a bunch of the songs for Zeta Gundam were based on Neil Sedaka songs. It would come as no surprise to learn that some aspect of this episode, whether it was just the title or the whole episode, was at least partly inspired by that Cat Stevens song. In memory of Camille's parents, the story of Uranus, sometimes called Kylus Nocturnus, who was once the god of the star-filled sky. He is at once literally the heavens, what we would call space, but also has a human-like body. Likewise, Gaia, who also figures prominently in this story, is both a human-like woman and literally the earth. Oranos was a primordial creator deity in Greek mythology, and together with his consort Gaia, he sired most of the important deities in the generation that preceded the famous Olympians. In particular, he sired the Titans, including the youngest Titan, Cronus, 
who would himself one day be father to Zeus, Hades, Poseidon, Hera, Demeter, and Hestia. Besides being a creator, Ornos is most famous for his lust and for the horrific cruelty that he exhibited to Gaia and their children. In Hesiod's Theogony, Gaia describes him as the first being to ever commit a sin. His most famous act of cruelty was that whenever Gaia gave birth to a child whose appearance displeased Oranos, he would bind the newborn with chains and then thrust it into a tiny prison within Gaia's own body. He was not a kind and loving father to his free children, either. The myths are clear that any filial reverence they felt for him was outweighed by fear and hatred, all except for Cronus, who just hated him. The stars are coming now. The dark expanse beyond even the high heavens rushes to meet the Earth, to couple with Gaia and sire on her more children. Cronus waits, hidden. He is Gaia's son, his father, Uranus, the dark of night, the sky beyond the sky. It is still the time before time, and all the cosmos is swirling chaos. Vast Gaia awaits her husband's touch with shuddering dread, her body already swollen from the tortures he has inflicted on her. Their children cower in fear, remembering the fate of their siblings. Cronus waits, hidden. He is clever and strong, like his father Uranus, but he hates his cruel and lusty sire. He is more like his father than he dares admit. He grips the handle of a sickle until his knuckles are white. It is a crude thing made from gray flint and jagged like teeth. Gaia herself crafted it, but of all her children only Cronus dared to take it. Heir to his father's sins, he waits as his father descends. Uranus spreads himself upon the vast earth, hungry for Gaia's embrace. His mind is turned to lusty thoughts. He rejoices in his power and his wickedness. Now, Cronus emerges from ambush. With his left, he grips his father, and with the sickle in his right, he strikes. He hacks at the immortal flesh, dismembering his father and casting each piece away to fall wherever it might. A crime for a crime. Cruelty revisited on cruelty. A cycle of violence not yet ready to end. Next time on episode 2.7, Ain't Seen Nothing Yet, we will cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 6 and We Miss Captain Bright, Camille's Mixtape, Nina's New Favorite, Banned Substances. If there are any girls there, Camille wants to date them! 
gender-swapped cabedon. The definition of a brute. Jared's mantras and a long goodbye. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or just shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, AUG don't wear sleeves because new type psycho waves are transmitted through the biceps on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. This week's wrong Gundam opinion comes to us from patron J-Duels. Thank you, J-Duels. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The songs used in the tribute for Camille's parents are Charybdis by Et Nop and Brave New World by Ravenwing. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. thought of the works as like maybe too silly jeepers <laughs> the fact that you laugh makes me think we should keep it we're gonna keep it <laughs> jeepers complete with dead soldier i shouldn't say that quietly <laughs> i'm gonna hope you're editing <laughs> and heckner was uh, and Beckner, Heckner. his name is Henken Beckner, so, so it becomes Heckner. He's our new Dozel? No. What, what did I call him? Dozel. Zobel. Zobel. Admiral Zobel. He's our new Zobel. <laughs> Captain Heckner. Okay, talking now. Do, do, do. Talk, 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 talk. Plosives are my nemesis. <laughs> Sorry, All for me. I'm sorry the patriarchy makes your editing harder. You were a little puff on that patriarchy there. I have dubbed the captain of the Alexandria Corpse Captain. He looks so dead. He's sallow, like yellowy, every time they show him, and has really sunken cheeks and really sharp bone structure. He looks like a mummy. <laughs> or a vampire. I don't know how long he'll be around, but he will always be Corpse Captain. I'm sure he has a name. <laughs> you know it? No. <laughs> Irrelevant then. <laughs>